0: Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from Lead Pastor John Reese. We live in a culture in which people are concerned primarily about protecting themselves, protecting their rights, They would never consider loving a person who mistreated him. Instead, when people are wrong, they look for an opportunity to even the score. But David, in today's passage, when he is given an opportunity to save his life from a madman who's trying to kill him, and and sees leadership in in the kingdom of Israel that had already been promised to him by God, he refused to take it. Instead, he chose to wait for God to give it to him in his time and his way, and in doing this, he extends grace to his archenemy, Saul. And so my key point in today's message is this, though David clearly has grounds to take Saul's life, he decided not to, instead he chose the road of forgiveness and reconciliation. Last week, uh, we left David at a very unusual place. A miracle had just happened. Saul had finally, uh, you know, put him in a position where he could capture him. He was bearing down on him. And in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 3 of uh, 1 Samuel, We're told at the end of that chapter that an urgent message reached Saul that the Philistines were raiding Israel again. And so Saul quit chasing David and returned to fight the Philistines. So just like when it looked like it was curtains for David, there was no way out, a message comes to Saul and he has to quit the chase. We're told that ever since that time, the place where David was camped has been called the Rock of Escape. A miracle took place there. And then David left there after Saul went back and went to the strongholds of En Gedi. David is delivered from Saul again, but his reprieve will be short-lived. We aren't given any details in Scripture about Saul's engagement with the Philistines, which had forced him to abandon his pursuit. But it seems that Saul handled the crisis rather quickly and decisively for in chapter 24 he's on the chase again david's running for his life again saul is a relentless foe. foe foe he just doesn't give up he keeps coming and david hardly has time to catch his breath before saul is on his trail again in getty where david is located now is a kind of oasis right on the border of the dead sea it's on the west side and though there's many springs along the Dead Sea, only two of them are freshwater springs. And En-Gedi is one of those. And because of the fresh water there, uh, it was a place where shepherds often took their flocks, and it was also a place that attracted wildlife. So the spring provided a source of both water and food for David and his men. He's got a group of about 600 men with him now. This is a great place for them to lay low and hide out. Well, then in chapter 24, which we're going to look at this morning, we see in verse 1 that after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of Engedi. And so once again, Saul is given a, a scouting report as to David's location. It seems like there's no shortage of people who are willing to help Saul In his pursuit of David. And so Saul now heads toward Gedi in hot pursuit of David once again. Have you ever thought about how difficult this road to the throne has been for David? It's been a long, difficult road. When he was first anointed the next king of Israel, I don't think he was uh, understanding what a difficult road road this would be to get to the throne and uh, my question is you know if God has appointed him to be king and if God has the ability to get him to the throne quickly and easily why this long journey (laughs) why all these difficulties and all these tears I mean, if God could arrange for the Philistines to attack the Israelites just at the moment David needed to be delivered and take Saul off the trail and back to, deliver, to, to fight the Philistines, couldn't he have just as easily provided a swift and painless road to the throne for David? Well, God's using this time in David's life to shape him for the role he's going to have. God has a purpose in all this. And today we want to look at an incident where David could have easily put an end to this great injustice in his life, but he chose not to do it. Instead, David chooses a a longer, much more difficult road. And he chooses to love and respect the man who's doing everything he can to destroy him. And so let's look at chapter 24 together. It's a very interesting chapter. First, then, we're going to see how David spares Saul's life. In verses 1 through 3, we're told that after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of Engedi. And so Saul chose 300 elite troops from all of Israel. Now, in other words, this, these are the army rangers or the, the navy seals. These are the best of the best. These are the, his, his trained fighting men, 3,000 of them to capture David. And he went in search of David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. And at the place where the road passes some sheep folds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding further back in that very cave. Needing a restroom, Saul enters the privacy of a cave without his men this is a time he wants to be alone. <laughs> and all the caves in the region that he chooses, of all the caves that are there, he chooses to go into the very one that David and his men are hiding in. You know, picture the scene here an army of 3,000 of Saul's elite troops are outside the cave, armed and dangerous. David and his ragtag group of 600 men are huddled inside the darkness in the back of the cave hoping they aren't discovered. And then David's men couldn't believe their good fortune. Saul entered their cave alone and vulnerable. You know, they couldn't help but see God's hand in what's happening here. This is the chance to be done once and for all with their relentless enemy. They could hardly contain their joy over what God was doing for them. They whispered to David, now is your opportunity. Today the Lord is telling you in verse four, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. This is your day. You know, I like the way Dave, Dale Davis says, they broke out in song, they were singing, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. <laughs> I bet you didn't know that's where this song came from. <laughs> Who could not have seen this as God's opportunity? David's men can tell a stroke of providence when they see one. No one needs to go to Bible college to understand what God's up to here. And what does David do with this undreamed of opportunity? He sneaks up beside Saul, takes out his sword, and cuts off a corner of his robe. What? (laughs) David's chance to be rid of Saul, and all he does is cut off a corner of his robe? And David's men were outraged. Opportunities like this never come along in life. You never have opportunities like this. It's obvious that God put Saul in David's hands. But David refused to lay a hand on King Saul. He just cuts off a corner of his robe, which is lying beside him, and then he And then he seems to feel guilty about what he just did. We're told in verse 5, But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut off Saul's robe. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my lord, the king, he said to to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my lord, the king, and attack the Lord's anointed for the Lord himself has chosen him. And so David restrained his man and did not let them kill Saul. The reason David gives for not harming King Saul when he has an opportunity is that he is the Lord's anointed. For David to strike out against the king was to strike out against God. David was so committed to this course of action that he refused to harm Saul, and he also refused to let his men do anything to Saul as well. He wouldn't let them touch him. We're told in the New Living that he restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. And that word restrained is is really not strong enough here. David didn't just restrain his men. The, The NIV is a little better. It says he rebuked his men and did not let them attack Saul. But even that isn't as strong as the words that are used here. Dale Davis says that the words in the Hebrew suggest that David had to forcibly keep his men from harming Saul. It says, he says, One would never know it from our Bible versions, most of which allege in verse 7 that he persuaded or rebuked or restrained his men with words. But the Hebrew text reads, So David tore apart his men with words suggesting that he had to resort to violent, threatening language to cool their hot heads. David had to tear him up or cut him down with words in order to prevent them from spilling Saul's blood. Meanwhile, Saul finishes his business, gets up and goes his way. An opportunity missed that will never come again. You know, you look at this and you think, how did David reason through this? What what caused him to respond like he did? I mean, Saul's been trying to kill him. He's been unfair to him all along. And it seemed to everyone that God had provided this opportunity. God had placed the enemy in their hands. If the tables were turned, Saul wouldn't have hesitated to kill David. Why would David pass up an opportunity like this? And the answer to that question lies in what it means to David that Saul is the Lord's anointed one. It means that Saul had been set apart by God to be the king of Israel. It means that if God had put him in his position, then it was God's to take him out of his position when he was done with him. You know, Although though David too is the Lord's anointed, he's been anointed too by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. He refused to accept the old king as anything other than what he's always been to him, his sovereign. You know what that means? That means just because there's a way out of our troubles doesn't mean God wants us to take it. Yeah. Gordon Ketty put it this way. An open door is not in itself proof of God's will circumstances in God's providence are not a substitute for the principle he has revealed in his word, the Bible. In other words, the mere fact that there's an opportunity before you to get out of a difficult situation doesn't mean it's God's will for you to use it. At times, God tests us with opportunities that don't align with his word. In other words, to show us the condition of our hearts, and to cause us to look to him for help and strength. Now now consider what an incredibly difficult test this would have been for David. Arthur Pink explains it this way. He says, One stroke of his, his sword, and he steps into the throne. Farewell to poverty, farewell to a life of being hunted like a goat, Reproaches and sneers and defeat would cease. Adulation, triumphs, and riches would be his. But at what cost? At his sacrifice of faith. At the sacrifice of a humble will waiting on God's time. At the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care and provision and guidance and tenderness. No, even a throne at that price is too dear. And he concludes by saying, faith will wait. It wouldn't have been difficult for David to justify slaying Saul. I mean, the things that he was doing to him were so unfair, so unreasonable. And not only had he done them to him, he had done them to people he felt had helped David in some way. Do you remember the 85 priests he murdered in Nob because they had unwittingly helped David, not even knowing that he was fleeing from Saul at the time? And since David has already been anointed king, he might have reasoned that it's within his rights to do this. And I wonder how many of us today justify our actions because we believe that God has given us an opportunity and we don't really see if they conform to God's will. We reason that the ends justify the means or the results are all that matters. David here is at a critical turning point in his life. He knew God had promised him the throne is he going to take it by force or is he going to wait for God to give it? Would he do whatever he needed to do to get out of this painful situation in his life? Or would he wait on God to deliver him in his time and his way? David understood that the kingdom, which would certainly be his one day, was not for him to take by force. The kingdom had been given to Saul by God. In that sense, he's the Lord's anointed and it's up to God to take him out of his position when he's ready. David refused to take things into his own hands. The kingdom could only come to him as God's gift. And whether David would reign was never in doubt. God had already promised him that he would reign. What was in doubt was how. How is he going to use his power to reign as king? Secondly, then, we see that David appeals to Saul. After Saul left the cave and was headed back toward his troops, David did something that was incredibly risky. He goes to the front of the cave and he yells out after Saul, exposing that he's there in the cave where they could be trapped very easily. And he shouted after Saul and said, My Lord, the king. And and, and Saul turned around and David bowed low before him. Notice the respect with which David addresses Saul. He bows with his face toward the ground. And then in verse 9, we're told that then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say, I'm trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. I, it's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you've been hunting for me to kill me. Now, the symbolic significance of cutting off a piece of Saul's robe is that it's his royal robe, and it's in a sense, David could be saying that, you know, I'm taking a piece of your royal robe, but that's not the purpose here. The purpose of cutting off a piece of the robe was David to show his goodwill and faithfulness to Saul, even though Saul was still trying to hurt him. And then David says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between us. I'm leaving this in the hands of God to be the judge. I'm not going to be your judge. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me but I will never harm you. There's going to be a problem between us. It's going to be on your side. He says, as the old proverb says, evil from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I'll never harm you. And David tells Saul that he's going to leave it to God to bring justice. He's not going to take it on himself. And then he adds this, Who is the king trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He, God, is my advocate. He will rescue me from your power. And David says, you know, I trust God with my life. I trust him with this injustice in my life. Do you have an injustice in your life? Uh, I'll let him deal with the unfairness of what I'm going through. I'm not going to be the judge and jury. I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's servant. And David, in calling out to Saul, his life depends on the effect these words are going to have on Saul. Remember how relentlessly Saul's been pursuing him? He's taken troops all across the country trying to capture him. Thirdly, then we see what Saul's reaction is to David's act of mercy. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back and said, Is that really you, my son David? And then he began to cry. This is one of those moments that could have played out a number of different ways. Saul could have commanded his troops to rush up the hillside to go into this box cave and slaughter David and his men. That was definitely a possibility. Instead, God's conviction was so heavy on Saul, and he saw his sin for what it was, and he broke down and began to weep. You know, why did he cry here? John Woodward says this. He says, it could have been because of the shock of how close he had been to death himself, or... It could have been the stabbing pain of an accusing conscience. He had been so unfairly pursuing David, and David had only done, been loyal to him. And he had all that innocent blood on his hands trying to capture David. Maybe he had a, 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 you know, an insight of what he, who he was and what he's been doing. Or maybe it was the realization at last that he's not going to be able to stop this man from becoming the king no matter what he does. Could be some of all these things, but anyway, Saul breaks at that moment. And in verse 17, he says to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for the Lord put me in a place where you could have easily killed me and you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May God reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And everything David had said was true. Saul's walking out of the cave was proof that he was not his enemy. And for the first time then, Saul confesses what he's known all along in verse 20. He says, now I realize that you surely are going to be king. That's why he's been trying to kill him. And that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. And he admits that. Before David, but he also admits that before all these troops that are with him, too. They all hear what he says. And notice that this acknowledgement was not dragged out of Saul by a sword being held at his throat, it was forced out of him by David's righteousness and mercy. And there remained only one more thing for Saul to say to David. He said, Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, when you are made king, that you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. And then we're told that so David promised this to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. They didn't go with him. They're still not trusting him. The men in the, the cave wanted David to take the opportunity he had to end this trial David's response didn't make any sense to them whatsoever, but David was resolved to let God determine both the time and the way the trial would end. To David, it was God's responsibility to bring about justice where there's end justice. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Dear friends, never, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And the idea here is love your enemy and let God convict them and God to bring judgment on them, heaping burning coals of shame on their head. That's God's business, not ours. And it will happen in God's time and God's way. To apply this to us then, this sermon is really about how we treat people who have wronged us. Giving is one of the hardest things a person will ever do in their life. But not forgiving is even harder. It leaves you with resentment, the desire for vengeance, and these things begin to consume you. They eat away like a cancer inside of you. In David's relationship with Saul, he he chose to forgive an enemy. And when David refused to raise his hand against Saul, in essence he was saying, God anointed people with special dignity and those who are anointed by God have been selected by God. Saul may have deserved to die, he's not worthy to be spared, but as the Lord's anointed, he is someone set apart by God and he has to be treated with sacred dignity. And David said, I will not lay a hand on him. Timothy Keller explains what that means for us. He says this, he says, You too are surrounded by people. Many people who in themselves don't deserve good treatment. But because they were created by God, you must treat them with respect. Genesis chapter 1 says all human beings are made in the image of God, and so they have a, a sacred dignity about them. We're all like David, surrounded by souls. In many cases, people we don't particularly like. People who don't deserve our kindness. But because the image of God is in them, we must treat them as God treats them, which is infinitely precious and worthy of absolute dignity and respect. God, after all, is their creator. John Calvin said the same thing. He said this. He said, The Lord commands us to do good to all without exception. Yet the greatest part of humanity are most unworthy if they were judged on their own merits. But Scripture teaches us we're not to consider what they merit in and of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in them all We remember to look upon the image of God in them which effaces their transgressions and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. In other words, we need to understand that the person we are struggling with in our lives is God's creation, they belong to God in that sense, and they should be treated like God's property. In the scriptures, we're told to love even our enemies, those who have wronged us. It's never your job to give people what they deserve. You're not their judge. That's God's role. Now, I do want to just say one thing here, and that is just a little sideline, that we're not talking about the role of government right now. The role of government is to punish evil. And so we're not talking about the role of government. We're talking about how we as individuals treat those who have mistreated us. And it's not ours to exact justice. For one thing, we don't ever have the full picture. We don't ever know everything about the other person. Only God does. You don't know what the other person's background is. You don't know what has shaped the other person's life. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know the motives of their heart. You don't really know what they deserve. Only God has the whole picture, so he makes the perfect judge. But for another thing, we quickly forget that we're here only because of God's mercy ourselves. Your standing before God isn't because you deserve it. You don't deserve it. You've been given mercy by God. He has forgiven you. That's one of the main themes of the Bible. You and I live only by God's mercy. And so if we ourselves are unworthy recipients of mercy, why would we withhold mercy from someone who's wronged us? None of us have lived the way we should have. None of us have honored God as we should have. None of us have truly loved God with all of our hearts and souls and minds. Our, none of us have loved our neighbors as ourselves, the two great commandments. None of us have done that. And if we ignore God who has, if we ignore the God who has created us and sustains us and has given everything to us, then we're guilty of ingratitude toward him. If you have harmony with God today, it's only because of his forgiveness and mercy. And if we then withhold mercy and forgiveness from someone who has been unjust to us, that's incredibly unfair. Keller takes us a step further. He says this. He says, if you don't forgive people, then you become like them. If you're angry at somebody because they've been angry at you, then you become an angry person like they're an angry person. If you're self-focused and feeling sorry for yourself because of someone in your life, then you're becoming like that person. If, if it makes you feel self-righteous or, or makes you justify cruel behavior in your life, then you're becoming like the very person you're trying to avoid. Avoid. If someone does evil to you and you don't forgive them, then evil wins and it starts to come inside you. It seeps into you. It makes you harder. You have to forgive. It's not just the right thing to do. It's the necessary thing to do. It's desperately needed. If David had killed Saul in vengeance, if David had let his anger go, if David had let himself go, get to the place where he was self pitying and self absorbed and self righteous and therefore capable of cruelty as Saul had become, then by killing Saul, he would have put another Saul on the throne. Now, I know how difficult it is to forgive that person in your life who's hurt you without wanting to hurt them in return. It almost seems like injustice is winning. It seems wrong. It's hard to forgive. In an essay on forgiveness, a young man shared how much it cost him to forgive the woman who led him on and then jilted him. They were going to get married, and then she just left him for somebody else. And this is what he says he's talking about the cost of forgiveness. He says, once I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind, I forgave her, but it took forgiving her in small sums over a year. I showed it when I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past. I did it whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity. I did it every time I saw her with the other man. I I did it when I, I praised her to others and when I really wanted to slice away at her reputation. He says, those were the payments I made for forgiveness. They were constant payments. I made them because of what she did to me. And he says, and this was all very, very painful to me. And he makes this statement. He says, pain is the currency of forgiveness. And what he's saying is that whenever you forgive someone, you pay a price sometimes a great price. You don't just say, hey, no big deal. There are payments to be made. Timothy Keller uses this illustration. He says, if you own a car and lend the car to somebody and they wreck it, there's only two things that can happen after that. Either the person pays for it or you forgive them and tell them, don't worry about it, in which case you pay for the car that was wrecked. You either pay for it through higher insurance premiums or you pay for it by going without a car or paying the price to fix the car. He says it's one thing to forgive people for things that don't matter. We can say, oh yeah, I forgive you when something costs us only $100. We can just forget that. He says, you're paying here, but it doesn't feel like much. He says, but when someone deeply wrongs us, there are only two things you can do. You can forgive them or make them pay. You either punish them by going to them and making them feel badly any time you have an opportunity, or you punish them by tarnishing their reputation, or you punish them by, in your heart, thinking about them constantly and being bitter and resentful toward them, or you go through the long, arduous, painful process of forgiving them. And when this young man said, I chose to forgive, I'm willing to make payments on the wrong that was done to me. He said, every time I did it, it hurt. He was paying the debt himself. He was absorbing the debt into himself. That's the reason forgiveness is so hard. We want to make people pay for what they've done to us. We can't tolerate injustice in our life. We punish them in the hope that they will suffer as much as they've made us suffer. But if you forgive them, you show love to them after they've hurt you. And the question is, how can anybody do that? How can anybody do that and really mean it? And the only way a person can do that is they must entrust the injustices in their life to God. David said, I'm not going to judge you, Saul. Everything he says shows that he believes Saul's in the wrong, but he says, I'm going to let God be the one who judges us. I'm going to be God the, I'll let God be the one who brings justice. He says, the Lord placed you at my mercy, but I spared you, for I will never harm the Lord's anointed. And David, in forgiving Saul, was actually Doing even more than that, he was giving him an opportunity to, to repent of his sin. And Saul, under conviction, did for a short time. He regretted his sinful heart when he saw it. He seemed to repent. But in two chapters, we're going to see this whole scenario play out again. We're going to see Saul pursuing David again, so the repentance wasn't genuine. We're going to see David having an opportunity to eliminate Saul again and not taking it. We're going to see another conversation like this. If you read chapter 26, it's almost a mirror copy of what's happening here. And David would expose his sin to him once again. David's gracious responses to Saul give Saul an opportunity to repent. Actually, what David did for Saul was not unlike what his future son would do for us. Of Jesus it said, he did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. And he himself personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. He, He bore the weight of our sins so that we dead to sin can live for what is right. By his wounds we have been healed. David might have risked his life to forgive Saul and reclaim him, but Jesus lost his life in order to forgive us and reclaim us. And Jesus offers us a chance to repent of our sin and be restored to a relationship with God but he did it by suffering the cost of forgiveness for us. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The reason you can't forgive that difficult person in your life is because they took something you value away from you. Maybe they broke your heart. Maybe they In some way, got a hold of some valued possession or position. Maybe they hurt your reputation. Things that were important from you were taken from you, and you're never going to have them back. But you know what happened when you received Jesus' forgiveness? You received all the things you lost. Your broken heart is now loved by your Father. Your, your wealth is now in heaven with God. Your reputation is in a name God has given you that will live on forever. And so when people wrong you now, they can't take away from you the things that really matter, the things that are really important to you. And so it should be much easier to forgive. But unless you have the emotional Wealth that comes from the gospel, you're not going to be able to forgive. But if you understand Jesus' love for you and forgiving you, then you'll be able to forgive others just as he has forgiven you and entrust the injustices to the Father. And in doing this, like David, you give your offender the opportunity to respond right to God. It's as simple as that. I want to end this by asking you just to search your own heart. Is is there anyone in your life that you're harboring bitterness toward? Is there anyone you've written out of your life because they have become a source of pain to you? If there is, why not take the high road of forgiveness like David did? Eugene Peterson paraphrases Romans 12 this way. Bless your enemies. Don't curse them under your breath. Don't hit back. Discover the beauty in everyone. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, God says. I'll take care of it. You, if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. (laughs) If he's thirsty, get him something to drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand that you're big enough to handle the things in our life that are unfair. Help us not to be people who demand justice, for the wrongs that have been done to us. Help us to be people who extend mercy and grace. Help us like David to entrust the unfair circumstances of our life to you and love even our enemies. We pray this in Jesus' name. We hope you were blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.